Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. Let's pray. So, Lord, as we uh, dive into this uh, messy, some ways ugly story, I pray that you would show us what you want us to see here from your word. We pray like we do every week that you would encourage us, exhort us, comfort us, and convict us, Lord. By your spirit, show us your goodness and your grace in the person of Jesus. So we want to see, so help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're a visitor with us and you're like, what in the world is this church preaching through after that story? We just go right through the, book of the, the books of the Bible and we're in Genesis 29, so welcome into this place with us as we walk through this story. Just a, a reminder that on our church app, and this was mainly meant for parents who might have kids in these services. We have a reading plan so you can know what's coming up and help your kids walk through these things. Uh, as we come to them, we do a self-cities uh, kids guide where the kids upstairs are getting some of the basics of the sermon. So if you ever want one of those as a parent, say, what in the world would Dave say to my kids about this? I'd be happy to share with you what I come up with week after week. But one of the reasons we preach through the Word of God, and one of the reasons I'm so convinced that the Word of God is the Word of God, is that the Word of God happens in real life. And it's messy, and it's broken, and it's not trying to hide over or cover up for the heroes of the story in the Word of God. And, and therefore, it, it testifies to us of its truth and its validity, and we believe that all scriptures are God-breathed and that God has a word for us this morning. So we're going to dive in unafraid um, of the messiness because we have a God who's with us in the mess. And so last week, just to get you caught up if you haven't been with us, we ended on kind of a, a high note. Pastor Daniel preached the service and he showed us how God revealed himself to Jacob and promised he would be with him. Remember, Jacob was running away for his life from his brother Esau after Jacob tricked him and deceived him. And Jacob woke up from this dream where God revealed himself to him and he named the place Bethel and said, how awesome is this place? This is the gate of heaven. And so perhaps all will be well, right? This, the story's taking a better turn from all the deception, all the brokenness, and maybe you've had an experience like this. The power and the presence of God is clear in your life. Your heart is amazed that he sees you and he's for you and all seems well. But then life keeps happening. <laughs> the next week comes, the next thing comes. And the reality is we're just on a long road home, like Jacob was on a long journey to get back home. And the promise of God's presence for us now today because of Jesus, because he's paid for our sins, is the promise that he'll be with us. It's not a promise that we'll never have to live another hard day. Not a promise that it's never going to be messy again. Not a promise that everything's going to go perfectly. It's just a promise so that he'll be with us in the mess to get us home. That's the promise of Jesus for us. So I've been reading 
something called the Wing Feather Saga to my boys at night before we go to bed. And in the Wing Feather Saga, there's this family, I'm not going to spoil too much for you, you should read it, it's a good book, and they're trying to get home. It's really what they're trying to do. And there's ugly creatures and bad people and long journeys and all these adventures and just one thing after another to get to this land called Anira, which is the homeland where the maker is. That's, that's the idea of the book. And I read this quote from that book to my boys as I was reading Genesis 29. Here's what it says. This is one of the, one of the kids talking to his brother. And he says, I just want to rest. Anyone in here just want to rest? <laughs> just want to rest. And he says, but I'm afraid that we won't be able to for a long, long time. Not until we make it to any era. Not until we, not until we get home. <laughs> until we make it all the way home. But I tell you, the promise of Anir is so true in my mind that if we have to fight to make it there with the maker's help, I'm willing to do it. <laughs> so let's read it one more time quickly. I want to rest, but I'm afraid that we won't be able to for a long, long time. Not until we make it to Anira, until we make it home. If we have to fight to make it there with the maker's help, I'm willing to do it. So the story of Genesis, the story of our lives, right, in some ways would be something gossip columns would love to pick up on, right, that social media would love to pick up on and pick apart. It's ugly and it's gross at times. Sometimes the heroes in these stories sin blatantly and brutally. Sometimes they're sinned against that way. The suffering that we see in Genesis is hard and dark, and oftentimes, if you're just going to read this story or watch this movie or see this on some documentary, you would be tempted to give up. It just all goes bad all the time. But the promise over chapter 29 is the promise of chapter 28, that the gate of heaven is still open to Jacob and is still open to us because of the blood of Jesus which means God is still with us because of Jesus. God always accomplishes his purposes and will be with us to help us make it home even as we wander and stumble in the fight of faith. And that's what Genesis 29 is about. So let's dive in here. Point number one, God gives in verses one to 14. So last week, Pastor Daniel did a great job of showing God again, promising that his people will dwell in his place to enjoy his presence. That's where all of the Bible is going. That's where your life is going if you're in Christ, that God is working for you to be with him and enjoy him. And verse 1 of chapter 29 literally in Hebrew reads, and Jacob lifted up his feet. And it's a Hebrew phrase that has the idea that Jacob now has a skip in his step. He's got an eagerness in his step now. And so we could say, well, why? Well, I think it's because before he was simply running for his life to some unknown place without a plan. But now he has met God and he's running with the promises and presence of God before his eyes, which gives him a new skip in his step. 
When we remember who God is and what he's promised and that he says, I'll be with you, no matter what we're moving toward, there can be kind of an eagerness in our hearts to see what he has next because we trust him. No, he's for us and he's with us. And this story starts out amazing. We start out by thinking, wow, this looks really good. In fact, it should remind us of Genesis 24. So in Genesis 24, do you remember the miraculous story of Abraham's servant going to find a wife for Isaac near the same place? You remember Abraham gave him these instructions and the servant went to this far journey, prayed this prayer, waited on God, and he found Isaac, Rebekah. Do you remember the servant and his humble, bold prayer for God's help? Do you remember where the servant stopped and all the magic happened, right? He stopped at a a well. (laughs) That's what we have here. Do you remember who the first woman he ran into was after the prayer? Rebecca. So in verses one to three, Jacob's on the run for his life because of his own deception. But here he comes to a well with a big rock covering it and a bunch of shepherds sitting around waiting to water their flocks and a woman approaches. And so you're starting to think, This is just like chapter 24. And in verses four to five, he engages the shepherds and says, hey, where are you from? And do you know my uncle who I'm looking for, which would have been Rebecca's brother, Laban? And they say, we do. And he says, is he well? Is he doing okay? And they say, he is. And oh, by the way, here comes his daughter, Rachel, with their sheep. So not only has he found Laban, but he's at a well, and the first woman he's about to run into is Laban's daughter, a potential answer to God's prayer. And it seems chapter 24 is repeating itself, and the author writes us this way because he wants you to have all these echoes in your head. But notice some differences, mainly between the servant of Abraham and Jacob. So Jacob, right, in chapter 24, the servant, what does he do when he gets there? He pauses and he prays and he asks God to keep his promise and to show him what's best. He waits on the Lord. Lord, what are you going to do here? In this chapter, in verses 7 to 10, Jacob takes control all by himself. He takes God's plans into his own hands, assuming he knows what's best. Now my gut is that Jacob isn't all bad here, right? As I'm reading through this book, I'm trying to go, who is this guy? (laughs) What is going on right now? And in this moment, I think he really thinks that God's doing something. God's with me. He's for me. And I think that's why in verse 11, when he kisses Rachel and weeps tears of joy and relief, he's, he's he's not going over the top there. He's genuinely relieved and going, God is working. God is doing something. But... All Jacob knows is taking things into his own hands. It's all he knows. It's all he ever does. Even in the midst of God's plans, his instincts in this moment say, take control. Take what you want. Go get what you're supposed to get. Instead of letting God give him what he's promised, instead of waiting, instead of pausing, instead of praying, instead of asking for God's help in leading, he just moves in. And so while he's waiting trying to get these shepherds to water their flocks and get out of there, maybe so he gets to hang out with Rachel by himself. Rachel finally shows up. And Jacob is impressed with her in many ways and thinks it's time to take some action. (laughs) 
And so he goes and rolls this massive stone off of the well by himself. Right? This is a young guy trying to impress a young lady. It's like, I got this stone. Right? <laughs> Normally all the shepherds move it, but somehow he gets this massive stone off the well by himself. He waters her sheep, completely ignoring customs and all the other shepherds where they're supposed to water together. And he tells her who he is. Now perhaps, we don't know, right? We don't know, we can't go back and change history. Perhaps if he had waited on the Lord, some of the upcoming trouble that's gonna come could have been avoided. Maybe, maybe not. But either way, God is still answering prayers and Jacob is in this process of knowing what does it mean to walk and wait and trust on the Lord. So then Rachel runs and tells her dad, that some strong, apparent, distant family member has kissed her and is at the well crying, right? So I don't know what that looked like, but she runs back. She's like, there's a guy. He took this huge rock off, and he watered my sheep. He kissed me, and he's there crying. So could you come and talk to him, Dad? And so Laban runs there, and Jacob tells him his story, and somehow Laban is convinced, yeah, your family. And so he takes him in, and he puts Jacob up for a month, and Jacob, likely at this point, right, if we're reading the story, Jacob likely already has his eyes on a way to make Rachel his wife in his own wisdom. And as we find out about Laban, my guess is that Laban probably noticed that and already has his eyes on ways to make Jacob his fool. <laughs> Where Jacob is going, I got this. I'm wise. I know how to get what I want. Laban's looking at him and going, I got you. I know how to get what I want. Jacob's growing, I think, in the Lord, but his sinful, deal-making character is going to lead him to more sorrow at the hands of a deceiver that can match him and is maybe even better than he is at it. And this is a bit, <laughs> I think, of what it's like to know God, but to live life on autopilot or according to our own timing. Have you ever rushed into something, right? Something you can kind of justify, you can kind of make sense of, something that seems good, you're applying some practical wisdom, but you, you haven't really stopped to wait on the Lord. You, you haven't really stopped to ask him what he would have you do. You haven't really said, Lord, is, is this where you're telling me to go? Not stopping to pray, not stopping to let God lead and guide and keep his promises and his ways, but instead running ahead at whatever seems best next whether with our time or energy or money or families, whatever. And because we're on this journey, it is messy. And Jacob is about to make a mess. And it's going to be messy here. But God always keeps his promises and his purposes in the mess. And we're going to see that. So point number two, point number one is God gives. Here God is showing up, meeting Jacob. Point number two is man takes. So Jacob's own sin has gotten him into trouble at times. And yet God has been with him and preserved him and protected him and given him his presence. And now Jacob is going to suffer at the hands of another opportunistic deceiver named Laban. So look at verse 15. It sounds nice enough at first, but when we see Laban in action, we know that he's already got schemes going on in his mind. Verse 15 says, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? I think uh, Laban already knows what Jacob's going to ask for. I think he's been watching this month. My guess is that he could figure out over the month that they were together that Jacob has his eyes on Rachel. 
And in verses 16 to 17, it describes the older sister Leah as less attractive and less appealing to Jacob than her younger sister Rachel. And in verse 18, because of his love for Rachel, Jacob offers to work seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage, which is two to three times more than would have been expected. So he's all in, right? He's seen her at the well. His heart started running after her as soon as he saw her. He's probably not stopped much to think or wait on the Lord about it much since he got there. And he's going for it. Like, I will work seven years, but I'll double the normal price if you give me what I want. And in verse 19, Laban agrees. And so it says, Jacob served seven years And it seemed like only a few days to him because he loved her so much. So you can imagine as he's working, they're spending time together. He's looking across the field at her, right? He's peeking around the sheep in the tents, right? There's all this anticipation of you're going to be mine someday, right? This is what I'm working for. Because he loves her, it just felt like a few days. Now, most people are nervous and a bit timid when talking to their father-in-laws about their hand in marriage, right, of their, of their daughters. I don't know if that still happens anymore. Um, but most people are a bit nervous and timid going into that conversation. Not Jacob at the end of seven years. This, this is what he says in verse 21. Give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. Right, that's not timid. That's not bashfully saying, give it to me, right? Give me what's mine. I'm entitled to this. He's direct. Now, it's likely that Laban has been dragging his feet and milking Jacob for all he's worth. And Jacob probably recognizes this kind of game because he's played it really well before himself, right? You remember when Esau sold a birthright for a meal and Jacob took advantage of his desire. Jacob goes, I know what you're doing. (laughs) I've played this game before. I've been on the other end. Jacob sees Laban taking advantage of his own desire here. And Jacob says, give me what's mine. And then Laban, maybe to our surprise, immediately almost says, okay, let's have the party. Right? So at this time, they would have had a, a week-long party. That at the end of night one, the bride and the groom go and they consummate their marriage. And they party for another week like kings and queens. And so Laban's like, okay, let's get everyone together. So he throws this party And then the story turns ugly and we see the deceiver deceived and realize he's been taken advantage of for these seven years. So look at verses 23 and then skip to verse 25. It says, but in the evening, this is Laban, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. And then verse 25, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. So messed up in so many ways, so awful in so many ways. Like, how in the world did it happen, right? So it was likely dark. These parties went late into the night, so it was likely dark when she entered the tent. She probably was wearing a wedding veil. Perhaps she wore Rachel's perfume. There's a possibility. There's a big party that some commentators say maybe Jacob had too much to drink. But besides all that, the authors want something ringing in our ears here. Do you remember another time when there was an intimate betrayal? Right, who did that involve? Right, remember Jacob? What did he do? He went into a tent, 
right? With like animal skins taped all over his body, like wearing his brother's clothes and getting so close to his father that he, he kissed him. The sad, sinful, horrific irony is thick here. The deceiver's being deceived. And Jacob goes and he says, you tricked me. You double-crossed me. How could you? And Laban, with even more irony, says, well, where we come from, the older daughter goes first. We don't honor the younger over the older, which is exactly what Jacob had tricked his father into doing. So here's Jacob with just a mirror to himself. Jacob has sinned much. He has deceived much. He has taken what he wanted. He has manipulated. He has betrayed. He's followed his own desires to the neglect of other people. And now he has sinned against. And he is deceived. And he is manipulated. And he is betrayed. And his own desires likely blinded him to what was actually happening. Not only did his being sinned against come against him, but his sinfulness and his sinful desires and his life of taking, taking, taking made him careless. Parents, maybe uh, you've had one of those moments uh, where one of your kids does one of those things where they seem kind of like you, but not in a good way. And you go, oh, that, that was me, right? Or, oh, right, I, I know where they got that phrase or that behavior from. And by God's grace in that moment, what is God doing, right? He, he's showing us a mirror and helping us to see our own sin and lean in and follow him more closely. And I think this is one of those moments for Jacob where God is smoothing the rough edges, showing him his own sin, and using what Laban means for evil for his ultimate sanctifying good, though it does not even for a moment excuse the sinful deceit Laban has committed, and Laban will suffer the consequences for that later on. But notice, in the midst of all this mess, in the midst of all this ugly, in the midst of all this sanctifying, in the midst of all the gross mess that's even hard to categorize, God has kept his promise. Despite all this crazy, human, ugly, he's given Jacob a wife from his own people. And I think if Jacob was more maturely trusting God here, not just following after his own heart, not just trying to control things in his own way, I think he would stop He would pray, he would wait, and he would love Leah and treasure her as bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh and one with her through whom God's promise of a people, place, and presence would take place. I think he'd stop and go, okay, it's Leah. I'm gonna love her. I'm gonna treasure her. I think he sins when he goes on (laughs) and takes Rachel. That's the clear pattern of marriage in Genesis 1 and 2, right? One man and one woman, one flesh. In fact, later on in the Mosaic law that doesn't exist yet, two sisters marrying the same guy will be against God's law. There's no doubt that this goes against everything God's about. Jacob is wrong to take Rachel as well, and Laban is happy to keep taking advantage of his sinful desire. But Jacob is used to taking. He's still in process, and he still can't see it clearly. So the, the rest of the story is just sad. Like these next couple of verses are just sad. He begrudgingly finishes his party week with Leah. 
right? Just, you can just imagine at this point, he's just going through the motions. Then he gets to marry Rachel and he consummates that with her just a week later. And then he works another seven years for her. Notice the text does not say it felt like only a few days this time. It doesn't feel like that this time, right? The sin of his own heart and the sin against him has trapped him in a situation now with two sister wives that will only be jealous and scheming themselves. His own heart and the sin against him has him still trying to do things his own way. It's a complete mess. And at this point, we would probably be okay to wonder if God can really work in this situation. And if he does, certainly it's going to have to be through Rachel, the favored one that he loves. Point number three is that God prevails. And the reality, uh, now if you read Genesis and you're just like, man, God just keeps working for these sinful, bad people. He just keeps being for them and not against them. And that's offensive to you. (laughs) That is the gospel. (laughs) That God works for us and is not against us, not because of us, not because we've cleaned up our acts, not because we knock it out of the park all the time, but because he's for us because of Jesus. So here it is, if this is offensive and hard, it's meant to be, and this is why the gospel is rejected by so many, because grace just seems too good, too easy, too something, right? But this is what grace is, God working for his people to keep his purposes, to keep his promises despite them, even while he works in them. And the reality is that chapter 28 is still true. The the gate of heaven is still open to Jacob. That's what's going on here. God is still with him despite all this. God is going to keep his promise of a great people through Jacob in his place to enjoy his presence. So if you're sitting here, And I hope this just becomes good news to you. Maybe you're sitting here and your sin makes you feel trapped. You're stuck. You've made a mess of things. And you wonder, is God really with me? Will he still keep his promises to me? Or maybe someone's sin against you has you wanting to just give up because it hurts so bad. And it's completely worn you out. Or perhaps you feel like the unfavored one, like Leah, forgotten by God and others. Well, the gospel of grace turns things upside down and cannot be stopped. And that's what happens here. Notice in verse 31, the Lord sees Leah. I I don't put... Uh, Leah in the same camp as I do with Jacob and his deception of Esau because Leah sadly probably didn't have much say in the matter like Jacob did. Leah is a victim here and is forgotten and beat up and tossed away and yet God sees her in her pain. The Lord sees you in your pain if you feel beat up and forgotten and the Lord shows favor to her and draws near to her Said she has four children. God is keeping his promises despite these crazy people. And that's good news for a room of crazy people. (laughs) 
Anyone in here made a mess of things in your life at times, right? Feel worn out by your sin or sin against you. Look around at the world and think, man, it's too crazy for God to turn that upside down. Well, these four children born to Leah show us that God sees the outcast, that God is working, God is moving, sees the unfavored, and God's plans aren't messed up by human messes. He keeps working. And notice this really encouraging pattern in how she names them. And she names Reuben, now my husband will love me. Simeon, because I'm hated. Levi, maybe now my husband will be attached to me. Right? All those things are like her in her pain is saying, I want something different. <laughs> right? She's living in this identity. This is who I am, forgotten one, unfavored one, beat up one, is trying to earn favor with someone. And then finally, child number four, she says, this time I will praise the Lord. <laughs> I'm, I'm done living out of the identity of what's been done to me and, and all this stuff. Instead, I'm just going to say, God is for me. God has seen me. So I'm going to praise God. Right? Leah's been sinned against and scorned and forgotten by her own husband. She just wants his love because she's hated and his attachment because he feels distant. But then by number four, something has changed. She says, I will praise the Lord. And through this unfavored one and out of this mess, comes praise to God and comes this guy named Judah. (laughs) So perhaps this can encourage you to praise God today in fresh ways because if you're in Christ, God sees you and he loves you and he's for you and he has not given up on you. And what we're going to find out about Judah, um, Judah is not an awesome dude either. He has his own horrible ugly sin and then his own kind of redemption story that we get to watch play out in Genesis. But what I want to spend the rest of our time doing is trace Judah in Genesis and then in Revelation and see the one that he ultimately leads to. So who is this Judah that comes from this unfavored Leah and where is this all heading? So listen to Genesis 49.10 as Jacob is blessing his children with which he had 12 by the end, 12 sons. Genesis 49.10 says, The scepter, sign of kingship, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So a king is coming, a king that's an offspring of Abraham, like the promises we've seen in Genesis, a king that's going to fulfill the promise that all the nations will obey and worship him. You're supposed to hear all these echoes in Genesis 49. And so you say, well, how's that going to happen? Where is that going to lead? Where does this story end? Well, let's go to the end of the story, right? Revelation chapter 5 has this picture of the world gathered around the throne of God and wondering, how will he finally make all things new? Who can do it, right? We've seen Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. We've seen all these people. We've seen the disciples and goodness gracious, they just all mess it up. Right? The, the best of them mess it up. There's, there's no heroes without flaws. There's no people without brokenness. Like, there's no one that you could commend to. Like, there's no one that you'd like, yeah, let's have them work in our nursery. Right? There's just no one and out of all this whole bunch that you're just really excited about. And so the people are going, well, who's going to do it? 
Who's going to accomplish it and make all things new? And so literally, they're weeping. (laughs) Who's going to do it? And verse 5 of Revelation 5 says this, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. (laughs) This little one born to this unfavored woman in this mess of a situation. The lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He can bring about the end of time. He can make all things new. This is Jesus. That's what we find out in Revelation. He's conquered through this unfavored one in this huge mess of a story will come the conquering king, the lion of Judah, who can finally end all messes and bring us into his presence forever. The question is, how will he do it? (laughs) How do you get in on this? How do you get in on this story? How does this become your story? We'll listen to just a little bit later in chapter five. All the people are saying this about this lion of Judah, Jesus Christ. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. How are we ransomed? How do we reign with him? How does our messy story get caught up in this redemptive story? How do we enjoy his presence now and forever? How will the offspring king come and redeem and bless and gather from all the nations? He was slain. His blood paid for your sins. If you believe in him, you're clothed in his righteousness. What does that mean? It means you're no longer identified by the awful things you've done. It means you're no longer identified by the things that have been done against you. It's not who you are. The things you've done and the things done against you are not who you are anymore. How are you identified? You're identified by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Lion of Judah, the offspring come through the mess of the story, the unfavored one where God was still working his redemption in those people and for these people in this room to bring about the the salvation that we need, the, the hope that we need, the righteousness that we need because we're all a mess. We're all broken, and he entered the mess, and he closeth with his righteousness. You're not, you're not what you've done. You're not what's been done to you. So right now, as you look at this story, this story of a, a messy, ugly, overeager, impatient deception and betrayal and sin, and as you see Jacob sin and sinned against, as you see Leah unfavored and abandoned, you can know God is with them and is with us in the mess because of Jesus Christ. Like that, like I'm not playing games. It's not a motivational talk. I'm not trying to make you feel better. If you trust in Jesus, he's with you in the mess today. In your mess today, his broad shoulders, his omnipotence is able to take every one of your cares represented in this room, every heart, every brokenness, every sorrow, and say, I'm with you, I'm for you, I'm here, I've done bigger things, I can handle this. He's redeeming a people from their sins, not looking around trying to find sinless people. He's bringing them to himself. You cannot out-sin his grace. 
He's drawing you out of the things done against you and into his loving arms. He's drawing you away from your current sin and the mess it has you trapped in and calling you to freedom and joy in his presence. He sees you. Today, right now, he sees you where you're sitting right now. He's working. He's gonna redeem a people through the blood of Jesus and then fill a people to walk with him towards home through all the mess, all the immaturity, all the sin, all the pain. He worked in this story to ultimately bring about his promise to bring people to his place to enjoy his presence. And in Jesus, the gate of heaven is still open to us. In the highs and the lows to get us home by his presence and power. And so though we don't have ultimate rest, we can take him up on his promise. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we can know that one day soon, perfect rest is coming. So let me read you that quote from the Winged Feather Saga one more time. It says, I want to rest, but I'm afraid that we won't be able to for a long, long time. Not until we make it to Aniera, not until we make it all the way home. If we have to fight to make it there with the maker's help, I'm willing to do it. So let me pray for us. Lord, you work in the mess. You're for us, not against us because of Jesus. And so Lord, I just pray for those that are here, Lord, and and know you and trust you that this would be a moment where they lay down all the mess at your feet realizing that you're already in it with them you're, you're walking with them you're drawing them to yourself even in this moment Lord and so I pray that as we come to eat and drink with you in communion to fellowship with you Lord that they would just lay their messes at your feet and say Lord take my mess help me cast their cares upon you because you care for them and Lord to trust again in fresh ways that they are not what they've done and they are not what's been done to them they are identified by the blood of Jesus Christ and that from that place of safety that they would come and lay it before you. Lay down bitterness and frustration and, and pain and brokenness and wrong-placed shame. Lord, all these things that are so entrapping and walk, like we sang about earlier, in the, the freedom of being a child of God. Because the line of Judah has conquered by being slain on our behalf so we didn't have to be slain, but we could be with him forever. And Lord, I pray for those that are here and they don't yet trust Jesus. Lord, make this story of redemption their story today. Help them to see that all they've been running at, trying to take things their own way, do things in their own power, get to some place where there's gonna be some magical thing that makes life feel fulfilling or right or good, Lord, that it's all just gonna be a hamster wheel. And Lord, help them rest in the finished work of Jesus who today would say, come to me. Trust me for forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life in my presence. Come, come to me and I will walk, walk with you on this journey home. So Lord, be with us now as we come into your presence. Be with us now as we fellowship. Help us lay it all down at your feet, Lord, and just come right as we are, right where we are. Come to you knowing you already know and are eager to walk with us and be with us and work in us and accomplish your purposes by your presence in all of our messiness. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.